Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. On today's episode, Tim is doing the main content, and is it Isaiah Two, yeah, I'll be in Isaiah two and eight, and I'll be talking about Revelation and how um, when God doesn't provide the answers that we want, the temptations to look for truth from other sources. Okay, that'll be fun. We recorded that a while ago, and mm-hmm. to be honest, I don't remember any of it. <laughs> oh, so it I'll good. enjoy listening to that this week along <laughs> with you, listener. It'll be great. Uh, and before we do that, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. So I've been working through Worthy by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. One of the texts that they exegete through is Genesis 3.16. In this passage, uh, Genesis 3.16 specifically references this desire, uh, the desire of the woman. I'll just read the passage for you. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. That is the ESV translation. It states, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The ESV has uh, acquired a great deal of criticism and heat uh, because of their translation here. Um, The word contrary is not in the Hebrew text. It is a bit interpretive. Uh, So when it says your desire shall be contrary to your husband, many people abhor that translation. In fact, the um, book here, at least Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher's book, they don't like that. The reason is because they think that the ESV translators are reading misogyny into the passage and a specific interpretation that is incorrect. Um, So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and just read a portion of uh, their book, and I'm going to interact with it. That's what I've been doing. I'm probably going to keep doing this. Um, this, These views have, as I've said before, these views have been articulated previously in more academic literature, but it's filtering down into popular mainstream. So it might sound true. uh, It might sound biblical. Um, but uh, I would contend it's not. I'm going to provide some responses to their exegesis in the books and business here. Uh, so Genesis 3, 6, uh, the woman is deceived. I'm going to start reading their, their book here. Um, so she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then they state, This is the act of a deceived woman, possibly inclined by her helper nature, sharing with her husband what she wrongly believes to be good to eat. So Eve is deceived, and then she gives to her husband, and they're interacting with that conversation. The next sentence they state, And notice that Adam was with her while she ate. We have no record of his trying to stop her or helping her fight Satan's attack. They were both there together. She was deceived and ate first. He ate next in wide-eyed disobedience. Okay, so they're pretty accurate in this. Um, They want to paint the woman as like deceived and innocent, uh, but they recognize that she was wrong and that she was deceived. And then Adam did act in wide-eyed disobedience, and he didn't do anything to try to stop her or anything. So actually, I have really no problems with this. Um, I think that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned willfully. But interestingly, that Second, uh, First Timothy two connects Adam's headship, like he was the one that was in charge, and and he sinned willfully. 
uh, is like almost like a, hey, you know what? You were the guy that was supposed to be in charge. You were the head that should have corrected her. So I thought it was interesting that they acknowledged that he should have corrected her. He should have said something to her, which in my opinion seems to be a leadership type of response. Now I'm guessing they're going to not view it that way, but at least that's what 1 Timothy 2 seems to communicate. Adam should have taken some leadership. This is going to be some, uh, part of the response to Genesis 3.16. So hold on with me here. Now we flip over to Genesis 3.16, and they explain the two interpretations, um, the interpretation I'm going to take, and then they have the second interpretation. So I'm going to read their book, starting on page 48. The second interpretation, again, this is concerning Genesis 3.16 now, the second interpretation understands desire as the God-ordained desire within the marriage relationship. Song of Solomon 7.10 uses desire this way. I am my lover's and his desire is for me. Okay, so Song of Solomon 7.10 is their interpretive key to Genesis 3.16. This is my first problem with that. Through the um, revelation that God has provided, what was written first? Genesis or Song of Songs? Genesis. Okay, so pretty much everybody can figure that out, okay? Genesis is written first, and so whatever the Song of Songs author is doing, we would think that the Song of Songs author is doing something consistent with the interpretation of Genesis by itself. Do we understand? So hermeneutically, I have a problem with the way that they're approaching Genesis 3.16. They're coming at it from a... Pro from a, a from a uh, uh, latter revelation to to understand the earlier. Okay, are we good here? It's like a looking at the, yeah, it's like a reinterpreting mm -hmm. going backwards, not the other direction. Yeah. So now continuing to read their book. In this view, the woman will continue to desire to be a helper to her husband. She desires to fill the earth. Okay, so what is the desire? Her desire will be for her husband. She desires to fill the earth and exercise dominion with him. Okay, so that's their interpretation of this text. She desires to fill the earth. Okay, that's her design. God made her for that. And then exercise dominion with him. So they're working together um, in an egalitarian, equality way. But her desire to fulfill the creation mandate will meet with frustration. He will rule, referring to a sinful, harsh rule. Okay, because the end of Genesis 3.16 is he will rule over her. So I'm going to read the ESV uh, Genesis 3.16 again, but from their perspective. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your sexual desire will be for your husband, but he will exercise coercive rule over you. Okay, so the desire that they have in this passage, according to them, is a positive thing. She has a sexual desire for her husband, but he responds by using her desire for sex against her by using, by coercively uh, ruling over her. How are you doing? Are we, are we okay? Yeah. Yep, I'm with you. So one of the problems with this interpretation, well, there's a few problems. I've Probably already said- yeah. So we want to explain why exegetically that it's wrong. And most people <laughs> want to just go to Genesis 4-7 to prove that it's wrong. And I'm going to start there. Actually, I'm not going to start there. Here's one of the reasons why that interpretation is wrong. 
first, the very next verse in Genesis, oh man, I forgot. By the way, they have said explicitly in their book, there's, we favor the second interpretation, the interpretation I just gave you. They say, we favor the second interpretation of desire because it better fits the immediate context. Okay, so according to them, sexual desire fits the immediate context better, all right, than the first few, which I'm going to argue for. However, in the very next verse, you have, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Okay, so what's the verb that we have, God's response to Adam? Because you have listened, listened, you listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, what did he do back in Genesis 3, 6? It's funny, if you look at the net translation, yeah. it actually says, listen to your wife, is it means to obey her. It does, it's Shema. Yeah. Okay, so whenever you have Shema, the idea is that you listen and you... Obey. Obey. Yeah. Okay, so what would that denote? You're not the leader. What kind of desire do we have in Genesis 3.16? So while they say that exegetically in the close context, it actually argues for sexual interpretation, there's no argument for sex here at all. No. All right? There's actually authority built into the very next verse. Adam listened. He obeyed the voice of his wife. He did what she said and sinned against God. So... That seems to be exactly what she did previously when she was offering him the fruit. You know, what was that? It's like, here, take what God said not to do. And he's like, well, you're still walking around, so you obviously didn't die. And so he's going to willfully and deliberately disobey God, and he takes of the food hmm. and he eats. So I would argue that contextually, actually, the the argument uh, it seems to be your desire will be contrary. It's like she has a desire to rule over her husband. And that is what Genesis 3.16 is communicating. Second argument against their interpretation is that this is a judgment. And so why are you reading this positive desire? Yeah. Whatever's going yeah. on here seems to be something negative. Third, this has been argued ad nauseum in most commentaries, is that you have a description of the way life is in Genesis 3.16. I will multiply your pain in childbirth, and then you have this thing that's colloquially called the battle of the sexes. You have the woman, and you have the man, and what do you have? Battling again and again and again and again. All right. So this is a paradigmatic description of the way life is in this world. It's not supposed to be that way. It wasn't that way originally. Okay. But there is this battling. And if you want to get into the Song of Songs, well, what is the woman's strongest tool that she can use in her fight? Mm -hmm. Sex. Yep. Okay. So that's why I think the sex is connected to the Song of Songs is Solomon's teaching her, hey, guess what? Don't use this tool. And then finally, the clearest one is Genesis 4, 6, which I do believe is our argument for the authority and rule interpretation. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And listen to this next phrase. Mm -hmm. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin's desire. That's what this is here in Genesis 4-7. This is not a positive desire. Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must 
rule over it's it. It's like a mirror image. Okay, so the correspondence between Genesis 4-7 and Genesis 3-16 has been argued ad nauseum. It's all over the place. Everybody recognizes the correspondence. And in my paper, I explain how... You know, everybody's like, oh, Genesis 4-7, you don't really know what that passage means. It's unclear. And they get into all of these interpretive difficulties with Genesis 4-7. And the funny thing that I I push back on is like, listen, you have two interpretations of Genesis 4-7. You have the view that says sin's desire is trying to take you out, but you need to rule over it, which supports woman's desire is to have authority over her husband, and he needs to rule over her okay he's he, he it's his authority he is the one that's in control or the other interpretation of genesis 4 7 is we really don't know what it means okay so these are your options this is what it means or we just don't know i mean they can't even provide a plausible explanation of another interpretation so i'm like your argument against this interpretation is bad you have no replacement because you have no replacement yeah. It's like postmodernism. Yeah, it is. So you can't just say it doesn't mean we don't know what it means. Yes, everybody does. So the syntax is a little bit funky. You know, mm-hmm. that's okay. We can we clearly understand what the text is communicating. It's not an issue. All right, I've taken a really long books in business. I know this is kind of horrendous, but it's an important exegetical thing that you, particularly some of our female listeners, as this stuff's hitting mainstream, need to be aware of that exegesis is wrong. And it's wrong on multiple fronts. Um Paul seems to have something to refer to it in 1 Timothy 2 as well. So here's my books and business. Boom. Well done. Uh, mine's going to be really fast, so no worries about how long it took you. I'm going to talk about, for like two, one minute, the death of Ivan Illich. The last time, like two episodes or so ago, I brought it up because I was reading it, and I was giving it like a squishy six. I've done more research. I'm actually going to talk about it for an episode in the future. So I'm going to give it my final ranking of a solid six, but with a caveat. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. I'm going to make you give me a definitive difference. So define okay. what the difference between solid and squishy is. Well, squishy is I might go lower or higher. Solid is like, no, I'm convinced it's this, but I have a caveat, which I thought you would like because that's kind of I love your caveats. Word. Yeah. So squishy could have been like, maybe I'll come back and make it a five or maybe I'll make it a seven, but I'm like, no, it's a six. I'm, I'm solid on that. However, the caveat is that I think this is a multiple read book. Like, I'm pretty sure I need to read this again and again. And after a couple more reads, I might elevate it maybe a little bit more. I think, especially when we talk about it for the episode in the future, I think there's some benefit to thinking about the story. So that's it. That's all I have. Go for it, Charlie. All right. Uh, so a uh, little bit of uh, housekeeping here. Do you want to go back to something that we talked about in a previous books in business? We talked about the Bible Project. And I have an official pronunciation of that gal's name. Yeah. So we we knew at the time that Tim was butchering the name, and we now have direct evidence to that fact. I'm sorry. Yes. Elena Egans. Elena Egans, who is uh, like a couple degrees of separation away from the show, a previous roommate of mine. It is his sister-in-law, if I'm understanding things correctly. And so Elena and Anya and Cameron, thank you all of you for listening to our show. And uh, now that we have that name correct, uh, awesome. So uh, just that was like one part of my books and business. And then uh, the other part of my books and business is that the last four days I've been traveling with our women's soccer team in Michigan. And uh, depending on when this airs, you know, uh, this is probably previous. This is actually airing tomorrow, right? So it was last week. 
It's really hard, really hard to read books when you are driving a shuttle. It's also good that you didn't, though. I mean, I think the entire team would be yeah. happy with you. I did listen to some things, but none of it is worth mentioning at this point here. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So pretty much no books in business for Charlie other than my business, which was traveling to Michigan. And uh, yeah. So, Tim, why don't you give us a really quick, you kind of already did, but give us a really quick recap on what is coming up in this episode. Yeah. So a lot of times we pray and we ask the Lord, what do I do? What am I supposed to do in this situation? And how do I handle this or that? And we're asking for God to shed some light on a situation. Um, But actually, sometimes God doesn't shed light. He doesn't provide additional information. And it seems like God is silent towards us. Uh, There's various reasons for that, but um, because of God's silence, a lot of times we want information, we want revelation, we want light. And so we go looking for it from other sources. In Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 8, that's what's going on. The children of Israel are not getting any information or they're not giving the information that they want. So what do they do? They go looking for the answers. They go looking to it, looking for it uh, from other sources. And so the exhortation is, you know what? Be content with the information and the light that God has given. Then do it. Do whatever you are supposed to do with the revelation that you have and to the best of your ability, trusting a sovereign God to guide you each step of the way. Let's have a conversation about light. Throughout the Old Testament, we have light as a metaphor. I'm going to talk about this light metaphor both uh, today and then in a few weeks when I, um, when I share again. We're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to start the conversation off, though, with a verse that you're probably familiar with. Psalm 119.105 reads, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The last episode, we talked about Psalm 1. Well, the last episode, when I was speaking anyway. And we talked about how the tree is, um, the, the blessed man is a tree, and he is consuming the law of the Lord. Uh, constantly drinking in the Word of God, and how that Word of God creates this steadfastness, this this solidity that provides protection and provision for others. That idea of the Word of God being that tree is connected to how one lives one's life. Psalm 1 is commonly understood, popularly even understood, as a wisdom psalm. It concerns how you live. This idea of the tree and the steadfastness and the chaff that gets blown away is a theme that other metaphors are used. And we're going to see that a little bit in Isaiah chapter 8. The light and being able to see on the path, see and know what to do, okay, is connected to knowing the law of God. Uh, So this light metaphor is like you're living life and then you know what you're supposed to do. You know what direction you're supposed to walk in. The wise man walks in the light of the Lord. And in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light 
to my path. Now that idea we're going to see now, I'm going to flip over to Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah 2, we have this picture of the end times when the mountain of the Lord is exalted uh, above all of the other hills. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, I'll just read verses 2 through 4. That's going to set the conversation up, and you'll see this light terminology uh, turning, turning up again. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Okay, that's wisdom terminology, all right? We will live the right way. He is going to teach us how to live our lives. Continuing to read, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So you can see the correlation between the word of the Lord, the law of God, and then the living, the implementation of the law of God, the word of the Lord in one's life. But of course, this is an eschatological text when God is with us, Emmanuel. So it'll be a very different kind of revelation. Um, but still, there's a correlation between the word of the Lord and um, living in the right way. Now, continuing in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Okay, so this beating of the swords, okay, so there's going to be peace in the land. And why is that? Because Messiah is ruling and reigning on the earth. And people will not fight anymore because he is going to adjudicate true justice and there will be peace in the land. Okay, so a lot of people, they're familiar with chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, but the text doesn't really stop there. In fact, verse 5 connects this idea to, of light and walking uh, to a present-day situation. Uh, of, of uh, or it might be an eschatological situation, there's some discussion about that, of Israel, though. So in verse 5, it then says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So with this eschatological uh, memory, this eschatological principle in mind, walking in the law of the Lord, he then applies it to Israel in their day and age. And what does he exhort them to do? To walk in the light of the Lord. And, and so this idea of light, I can see the path. I know how I'm supposed to live my life. In the very next verse, though, in verse 6, he describes their situation, and it's not good. It's bad. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners." So Israel is not seeking the light of the Lord. They're looking for light, though. They're looking for light in a different place. This word here for forsaken your people, the idea is like a farmer's land, and it's abandoned, and it's just left to go fallow, and just whatever grows out of it. Do you understand that metaphor that's being used in verse 6? 
God has forsaken. He has abandoned. Now, wait, 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 wait. I thought the Lord is the light. The light gives them the ability to know on what they're supposed to do, of how they're supposed to walk. Here, God is not giving them light. You have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob. The rest of the verse explains why God has not given them light. Because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. You see, they are searching for light, but they're not looking for light from the right place. And this is the way things work with the Lord. You are either completely devoted to the Lord, and you feed off of the light, or the water, to use Psalm 1's metaphor, that the Lord gives, or if you want some other light, if you want some other knowledge, if you want some other revelation, you will not get the Lord's revelation. You will find an answer from some other source. I guarantee you. This is why it's very important when you come to the scriptures that you come with an open hand and say, God, guess what? I hand everything over to you. Okay? I, I don't care what the scriptures demand of me. I'll do it. You have to approach the scriptures that way. Otherwise, I guarantee you, you will read those, that text and you will find a way to rationalize it, to explain it away, to say, oh, that's not relevant to my situation because blah, 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 blah. And what are you essentially doing? You are creating a different light by which you're going to live your life. And thus, then God will not give you the light. Okay, so that's Isaiah 2. So Psalm 119, this idea of light, the idea continues, or it reoccurs, I should say, in Isaiah chapter 8. And this is supposed to be my main text. So how are we doing? You guys have any questions about this so far? Oh, no, I'm on the edge of my seat, man. Keep going. I'm serious about that. Okay. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 8, this idea of light reoccurs, and it's again connected to the law of the Lord. The section actually ends in, or begins in verse 11, but um, I'm going to read it. Let's just go. So verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. So Isaiah is being instructed by the Lord to not live life in a specific way, and it's the way of the people. And then verse 12, this is actually a, a verse that somebody ought to make a big deal about. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. That means like conspiracy theorists abound, and this is like Hey, there's nothing new under the sun, friend. Okay? It's like a People. verse for our times. Exactly, right. Okay, so um, anyway, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Okay, so this idea of the threats, you can imagine the political intrigue and the situations that Isaiah was, play, was in, people threatening his life, and he's saying, hey, don't be afraid of them, don't be concerned about their threats. Instead, there's somebody else that you need to fear. You need to fear the Lord. Okay, so common theme throughout the Old Testament. That's what we get in the very next verse. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, you will sanctify. 
Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I mean, you can imagine these political rulers that you're literally terrified about. And so as a result of your fear of this political ruler who could kill you, okay, you're going to change your message. You might say something different. You might live a different way. Some conspiracy, you know, fill in the blank, okay? And so there's... Uh, um, instead of fearing those political re rulers or that situation, Isaiah says, let the Lord be your dread. Be terrified of God. Don't be terrified of some other person. Verse 14, he will be a sanctuary. He will be the set apart place. Okay. So you're not going to live in fear of that person. The Lord will be your sanctuary and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So trust in the Lord, fear him. Okay. And, and he will be their stumbling block, the rock. Okay. That's another metaphor that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord is my rock and my foundation. Okay. He's the one I'm going to trust in. It's the steadfastness, the, the tree metaphor, the light metaphor, all of these metaphors emphasizing the Lord's foundation, strength, nourishment, uh, uh, revelation. Okay. So continuing verse 15, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Taken would be like captured. They're going to go into captivity. Okay. Here's the text that I really am wanting to focus on. That introduces it now. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Okay. Fun fact, the word disciple only occurs two times in the Old Testament. This is one of them. And that's got nothing to do with what I'm saying today. All right. That's just a fun fact. It was still a really fun fact. Yeah, there we go. So bind up the testimony and seal the law. So you have the law of God. Verse 17. I will wait on the Lord. Waiting. Next verse. Who hides his face from the house of Jacob. Oh, I want light. I want to know how to live. But what is God doing in verse 17? He's hiding his face from them. So I'm going to read all of verse 17 again. Here it is. I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. See that? You see, what happens when God doesn't give you light? What do you need to do? You wait on him and you hope for him. And when God's not telling you, this is the way. What do you often do? You run, you sin, you give up, you blame God. You blame him. You blame You're mad him. at him. Uh-huh. So where I was going was a little bit different. Maybe. Oh, sorry about that. Wow. But God. you look for some other light. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, i got to calm down over here. <laughs> you look for some other kind of an answer. You're like, God's not giving me the answer. So then you start searching and you start finding. And the finding's the sad part because you will find an answer. What do you have in verse 18? Here am I with the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. God has given revelation. That's all the revelation that you're going to get. And then what does he expect you to do? Verse 17, you wait for him. You hope in him. You trust him. That's the approach. 
But instead, the temptation is to go find truth from some other source. In verse 19, it states, and when, you, and when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Then verse 20, To the law and to the testimony. It's like this assertive, Go to the law, go to the testimony. It's the same words back in verse 16. You see, God doesn't answer the way that you want, and then you start looking for some kind of revelation from some other source that's going to lead you astray. The law and the testimony, the word of God, is the foundation. It is the source of spiritual nourishment that strengthens the tree Psalm 1, the blessed man. It gives light on the path, even when the path is sometimes dark and God says, I'm not going to give you answers. You have to trust me and trust the light that I've given you. So verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They don't have the light. They say they have the light. It looks like they have the light. They have answers, and it seems to make sense. But if it's not according to the law and the testimony, it's not the light of God. And you might be like, well, it is light. I can see how to live my life because of this. Yes. And we're going to talk about that light some more in my next recording session. <laughs> That's Isaiah 50. But before I'm done, I want to highlight this, diff, this this text and how there's this there's this light and darkness theme that begins right here. There's the the light word in verse 20 is like the dawn. It's not the normal word for light. It's like the sun coming up and it's like you're just starting to see the light. Yeah, the ESV actually says it is because they have no dawn. Dawn. The word is literally the sun coming up in the morning. Not the dish soap. Sorry. Verse 21, they will pass through it hard pressed and hungry. The text takes a very eschatological uh, turn here. And it's very questionable what's end times, what's the days of Jesus, and what's the days of the children of Israel and when Isaiah wrote this. So I'm going to read through it. They will pass through it hard pressed and hungry. And it will happen when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upwards like, whoa, they're cursing the king. They're cursing the God. Then they will look to the earth and they see trouble. And here you go. Keywords, darkness, gloom, of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. And what do they want? They want light. And the light that they had led them into darkness. Now, chapter 9, verse 1, the chapter division's bad. Okay, keeping going. Nevertheless, the gloom, there's that darkness word again, will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. Who is doing all this action? I believe that it's the eschatological end times opponent of Israel, but we're going to keep going. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. That's like the super deep darkness. Upon them, a light has shined. 
And you're probably now familiar with that verse. That's the Messiah. That's Yeshua. He is the light. And the correlation between him being the light to the law and the testimony in chapter 8, he is the source of your revelation. He is your guide through all of life. And you come to him and you hand it all over. And don't go searching for some other light. You will find light. It will lead you into darkness. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. I'm doing kind of a bibliology series, emphasizing the law of God and knowing God's word as the source, the foundation for how to live one's life. So what do you guys think about that? Well, fun fact, every year in apologetics, one of the key texts that I go through is 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you were reading, I, I had to quick and look it up. In verse 13 of chapter 3, it says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So this is Peter talking to those exiles who are probably living in like Rome or places very hostile to the gospel, and Nero is likely coming in the very near future. This is, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. And then it says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I thought, man, that sounds familiar. And sure enough, he was quoting this chapter when he encouraged uh -huh. the exiles to trust in God when everything's blowing apart. Uh -huh. And when, what's going to happen very quickly, Nero is going to begin a heavy persecution of the church. And he goes back to, that's very interesting. So that's mm -hmm. just a, a tidbit. But I think the when you don't settle for God's light, and then when God doesn't choose to answer your questions and you're tired of waiting, you find another place for truth. Mm -hmm. And man... Every time I find another truth, it's conveniently in agreement with, with my flesh. Yeah, with what I want. <laughs> it's, it just seems to fit. Uh -huh. So that's very helpful. It is funny, brother. It's always like that. It's, it's never like, oh, yeah, I went looking for other answers, and yeah, I guess I'm going to have to do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as you, were, as you were going through that, my, my eyes got fixed on that idea, the dawn. Yeah. Uh, the Hebrew word is, is shakar, mm -hmm. shakar. Yep. And what, what does that Hebrew word mean? It's actually the word for, well, yeah. it's Isaiah 14. It, well, well, so if it, the reason I'm bringing it up, this is a really <laughs> interesting translation. Um, it means black or like, it's very similar to the idea for being black. Oh, okay. And like how they get to dawn is a really interesting so I'm just I'm just like scrolling down through a, a dictionary here, Hebrew dictionary, and I'm I was trying to figure out how do they get dawn out of this word, and uh, so just I'll just you know we don't have time to talk about it here. If you have a thought on it, Tim, I'd invite it. But if you want a really interesting Old Testament word study, try to look up and and go down the rabbit trail, the wormhole on that word there. It's just it's really it's it's interesting. It's like how do they, how do they connect it to get to that? I, I think it's right, but because if if you're reading in a non, so Tim was reading from New King James, yeah. Andy and I were looking at ESV, mm -hmm. so like it might not say light, and so if you were to like gloss over, start looking up that word light, and you you know click on the word or whatever, what does that word mm -hmm. mean? And it could come up in a lexicon is like black. Mm -hmm. Well, how does the word black actually mean light? It's an interesting word study. That's what I was kind of clicking around and thinking through as Tim was talking. Mm -hmm. 
Um, if you want to say something about it, you can, but other, we could just, I can just leave it behind. Real quick is just, it's the same word used in Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, here, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So I wrote my dissertation and my book on this verse. So that word son of the morning, that's shachar. That's dawn. He is the son of the dawn, which is a metaphor for the planet Venus. If you get up early in the morning, or it's the morning star. Venus is the morning star. So I think the correlation is you go from darkness to then dawn. Yeah. It's yeah. like the beginning of the day. It's the light as it comes up. And, and it's used several times in the book of Isaiah, Shachar, in correlation with the light. And I think that it's chosen intentionally there because they're going from a darkness, a yeah. deep, deep darkness. It's like the end of the day of the Lord kind of a darkness to then the dawn and the sun arising as the king of kings comes and rules the land. You know, often when you turn to other cisterns to satisfy your longings or you turn to other sources of truth as a Christian, I think sometimes we see people walk in another direction. And I think our temptation is to say, what kind of an idiot does that? But in this passage, it's a really bad situation and the idea of waiting is present. And so if you've ever walked through a really difficult situation in life and just not known how you're to handle it and you, and you prayed for wisdom and God hasn't given you the wisdom yet, you're so desperate. Mm -hmm. You're so desperate yep. that you want anything to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And so I like the idea of that, you know, it's been so dark at this time and then here's your light and it doesn't you know but i don't know if that's actually i don't know how close that is in the text but i can just see someone who turns away from god or turns to some uh false truth to excuse or, or whatever and i can see where it's probably it could let's say it that way it could come out of a very dark time and yes. a very a big desiring for wisdom time and and yes. the, the, the test is probably will you keep waiting on the lord Will you yes. keep waiting on the Lord? Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's actually one of the applications that I've used of this text and applied it and tried to encourage and guide and direct, uh, particularly um, some family members that are more Pentecostal, charismatic. There's light that they presumably receive and how that light has to be consistent with the revelation of God's word. And the temptation when the light of God's word contradicts some kind of light that they have received. And then specifically even uh, dealing with uh, uh, one person who receives light contrary to God's word. And how this text is extremely applicable. This person wanted revelation and it, trans it, it transitioned. It was no longer God's word, but it was other spiritual beings that they were receiving light from and you can find light from other sources and the the prince of light the false light is happy to give information and light to you in deception you have to stay grounded in the word it is the true light never let go of it embrace it hold fast to it Never let it go. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email 
thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.